Okay, good evening, everyone. Hope y'all are doing well tonight. <clears throat> we're going to go ahead and uh, get started this evening, and we're going to be uh, in a couple of different passages tonight. So we're going to, uh, for the next couple of weeks, since we're coming to the end of the year, we'll start a new book at the beginning of the year. Uh, and so we have our Christmas um, service on the 20th. So I thought we would read some passages related to the incarnation, th those types of things, kind of leading up to that. And so we'll be looking at a couple of different ones tonight. And I would say the theme of these passages would be uh, the seed of the woman, right? The seed of the woman. Uh, and so we'll start in Genesis chapter 3, okay? So Genesis chapter 3. And we won't exhaust every passage that deals with the seed of the woman, <clears throat> but we will hit three main ones tonight uh, dealing with this, this issue. Um, and as it was first introduced in Genesis chapter 3, and then expanded and then brought to its fulfillment in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So let's pray, and then we'll read and begin our study. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to be together tonight, Lord, with your people. Uh, Lord, we are grateful to have your word that you have given to us. And Lord, we, as we are thinking now uh, more intently about the incarnation and all that you have accomplished for us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray that you might help us to see and, uh, Lord, more clearly understand <clears throat> how it is that you brought all these things about, Lord, in your uh, will and in your time, uh, that you predicted these things, Lord, even at the very beginning of the, of the world, uh, as soon as sin entered into the world, announcing there to our parents uh, the coming of Christ and how it is that He would be the one to redeem us uh, from the curse of the law, the curse of sin and death. So, Lord, may we see how uh, all of this is... Uh, predicated upon the incarnation of Christ, His taking on our human flesh, being made like us in all things, uh, coming and being born under the law, uh, living a perfect life, and then suffering the penalty uh, that was owed to us. So, Lord, may we have a clear understanding that uh, our salvation is hinging upon the incarnation and uh, the uniting of our nature with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, be with us tonight and teach us all things, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> Genesis 3, and we'll read verses 1 to 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God had said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat, it, eat of it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. 
He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. Here we have this account of the entrance of sin into the world and how that took place with our parents, with Adam and Eve there in the garden, where Adam was serving as a representative of the entire human race, right? That all of us are present in this in our father Adam, being in his loins. And what happened with him is certainly passed on to his children all the way down to the present generation so that the implications of this reach down to even us today and to all of our children and grandchildren and however many generations this earth continues, what took place here has been impacting humanity or mankind from the very beginning. And it will continue to do so until the end of time. But we see here that there is this temptation that comes from the serpent, that the serpent comes and tempts our first parents to transgress the law of God, right? To transgress and to disobey God, to not uphold it uh, and to uh, fail in, in that way. And in this way, sin entered into the world. And then as a result of that sin entering into the world, there is the pronouncement of death. And this was foretold to them in Genesis chapter two, that the day that they eat of the tree, that they would surely die. So there is this connection then between Satan, between sin, and between death. That these three are always united and connected together. Satan being the tempter who entices men to sin. And then when temptation is fully formed in a man, it leads to transgression or it leads to sin. And then the result of sin is always death, right? And this is the way it unfolded here with our original parents. Satan enticed them to sin. Through his enticement, they transgressed the law of God. They became transgressors of the commandment. And then as a result of their transgression, they were then penalized, right? They were justly condemned by God and they were brought into a state of condemnation and into a state of death. And the result of this we see is first a loss of their innocence. The original state in which they were created was a state of original righteousness or a state of innocence in that they were not known transgressors. Experientially, they did not know what evil was in terms of experience. Conceptually, they understood and knew that evil did exist because God was the one who named the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the concept or the knowledge of evil was there. It was given to them by God. But in terms of their experience, in terms of their practice, they were not transgressors. They had not experienced evil in their own uh, omissions uh, against God or, or in their commissions that they committed against God until they take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At that moment, the moment of their transgression and of their disobedience, then there is a loss of their innocence, in which case here it is communicated in their knowledge and understanding of their nakedness, that they have shame because they are naked. Um, and this is why the Lord is asking them, who told you that you were naked? How did this knowledge come to your attention, right? That you became 
ashamed and aware of this state. And this was because of the loss of their innocence. Also, we see that sin led to a loss of fellowship with God. Right before, there was a state of harmony, a state of peace, right? Tranquility between man and God. Man and God were not at enmity. They were not at war with one another. They were in a relationship of fellowship, of mutual fellowship, one with the other. But here we see that there is a loss of that fellowship, a loss that is first communicated in that they hid themselves from God. They sought to hide themselves so that God could not see them, so that God could not talk to them, so that the fellowship that formerly they experienced with the Lord that was sweet to them, that was something that they enjoyed and was inviting to them, now the presence of God is something that terrorizes them, something that they want to hide from. So there is this loss of fellowship, of this relationship with God. There is no longer the peace and harmony with God, but now there is a state of enmity and of unrest between the, the man and between God. And this is a result of whose fault? It's their fault, right? It's not God's fault. God did not change at all, right? God remained the same. He's always faithful to who He is. The fall came from man's side. Now, the relationship has changed, and the way that God is responding and relating to man has changed, but that's because of the sin of man. When sin entered into the equation, then based upon God's unchangeable character, He now relates to man in a different way. Before there was peace and harmony, now there is enmity and there is a state of unrest between God and man. And then also there is this enmity between God and man, right? There is a open hostility between God and man as a result of sin. In the natural state, in the sinful state, men hate God, right? They hate God. They despise God. They want nothing to do with God. And as a result of sin, God also is in judgment against men. That the Bible does teach that God hates the wicked, that He is against them, that He's opposed to them. And if they remain in that state of sin, in due time, God will justly judge them. Now, again, in terms of this relationship, God's hatred or despising detestation of man is just. It is right, right? Because men are loathsome and detestable in the sight of God because of their sin. So God has a just reason to be upset, to have enmity, to be at war with sinful men because they have rebelled against Him. Men, on the other hand, on the other hand, they also have hatred to God. They detest God. But in the case of men, it is unjust, right? It, there's no justifiable reason for men to hate God. But there's every reason for men to love God and adore Him and praise Him because He is their Creator and He gives to all mankind life, breath, and all things. So in terms of this enmity, God's enmity against man is justified because man has rebelled and transgressed his law that he had a right to give to men. But then man's hatred or enmity against God is unjustified because it is proceeding from his own sinfulness, his own sin and his wickedness and hatred for God. So this is the context in which then the first promise of salvation and redemption is delivered to mankind or introduced into the world. And it is important to note that who is the one who introduces this? Where does it come from? It comes from God, right? Man does not construct or come up with an idea, present it to God, and then God agrees with this. God is the one who initiated, and God is the one who makes the original pronouncement 
of the ultimate redemption of man through the seed of the woman. And that there would be someone that God would bring into the world who would undo, right, who would overturn what had happened as a result of Satan, of the serpent and what he had done. And that brings us to chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, to the serpent, and to the serpent we understand to be uh, that he's speaking of the devil or the great adversary of the church, of the people of God, and of mankind in general, the enemy of the saints who is none other than the devil, the enticer, the one who deceived them in the beginning. That there the Lord announces that there would be enmity between the serpent and the woman and between her seed, his seed and her seed. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, that there would be enmity between these two peoples, right? Between these two groups. Now, ultimately, this seed of the woman has to refer to who? Right? Who is the fulfillment of this? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there is going to be this enmity between the righteous and the wicked, which is uh, seen in its ultimate culmination in the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and in His enmity between the devil. Him and the devil, they are at odds with one another. And those who follow the devil and then those who follow Christ will be enmity between them. Then ultimately here, the seed will bruise you on the head. The seed of the woman will bruise the serpent on the head. He will deliver a fatal blow to the head of the serpent. And if you whack someone very, uh, you know, in a very hard way with a baseball bat or something in the head, right? What will happen to them? They're going to die, right? If you hit them hard enough in the head, you strike someone there, then it will be a death blow, right? It will lead to their ruin and to their destruction. But then the serpent will bruise him on the heel. The serpent will inflict pain and will inflict uh, some level of destruction upon the seed of the woman, but it will not be to the severity of what the seed of the woman will do to the serpent, right? Getting hit on the heel with a baseball bat, right, would be very painful, but it's not fatal, right? It's not going to kill you. But getting hit in the head with a baseball bat can be very fatal, and it's a much more severe blow to endure. And in this way, the serpent would seek to inflict pain upon the seed of the woman, and he would succeed in doing so, but the pain that he inflicts would be mitigated by God. It would be like being struck on the heel. And this happened certainly when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ died on the cross. There was a temporary blow given to him that did lead and result in a temporary death, right? He died and was buried for three days. However, in that blow that he delivers to the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman crushes him on the head. So he actually, he brings about his own ruin and his own demise. Through his hatred and through his malice against Christ, he actually falls into the pit that he has dug for him. It is his death, the death of Christ and his resurrection, that deals this final blow to the head of the serpent. And so here we see then this first pronouncement of the gospel and of the salvation that would come. And why it's directed to the serpent is because in terms of the enticement to sin, in terms of the entrance of death into the world, the instigator of all of that was who? Who was the one who brought it about? Well, it was the devil. Though certainly Adam and Eve played their part, and in terms of responsibility uh, as a federal head of the human race, it was Adam. 
in terms of Adam's enticement, it was the devil through the woman who enticed Adam. So everyone has responsibility, but all of this originated with the malice of the devil, right? And there is this league, this triumvirate between Satan, sin, and death, that these three are in league together, and they are the great enemies of, of mankind and of the household of God. And when the serpent is destroyed, what is destroyed along with him? Sin and death. Satan, sin, and death. So in this announcement of the destruction of the serpent, there is also the announcement, the implication of the destruction of sin and the destruction of death, that all of this would take place through this individual, this seed of the woman, who would be brought into the world by God himself. Also, it is important here that he is the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman, which is giving us a glimpse into the virgin birth, that he would be born of a woman, right, without a human father. And Jesus, we know, did not have a human father, but was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. And so here, this is laid out, the foundation of this is laid all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And if we go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8... 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. It tells us there, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the last sentence of the verse, it says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The very reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And here, the works of the devil is the enticement to sin, and the producing of sin and death in men. And Jesus Christ has appeared to destroy this work, to destroy Satan, to destroy sin, to destroy death, so that His people are no longer plagued by these enemies anymore. And in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no Satan there to entice us. There will be no sin. There will be no transgression because we'll be made perfectly righteous, and there will no longer be any death. We will never die. So all of those things that are a part of our present experience and a part of this fallen world, the old things will be done away with and everything will be renewed, right? We will be renewed into the image of the Son of God. And there will be no more enemies to torment us, none to cause us to sin, and no sin that would result in our death and our destruction anymore because Christ has overcome all of these things on our behalf. So here we have then in Genesis chapter 3, 15, the first announcement of the gospel and of the salvation, the redemption that would be brought into the world through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the seed of the woman. And that term seed is a important term throughout the Old Testament, that it is used repeatedly to refer to the Messiah or the Christ, the one promised by God who would come into the world and would be the source of salvation for the people of God. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. Here the term seed is used again. And in this case, it is the seed of Abraham. And the seed of Abraham and the seed of the woman are one and the same person. One and the same person. But as the revelation of God is unfolded, there is more insight, more light, more clarity given to this person, to this individual that certainly he is born of the woman, he is the seed of the woman, but also in Genesis 22, 
he is the seed of Abraham. And it is in this singular seed or offspring of Abraham that the nations of the world would be blessed, that they would receive the ultimate blessing from God. And what is the ultimate blessing of God that any man can experience? But deliverance from our sin, right? Salvation from sin and death. It cannot be blessings that just pertain to this present world because it doesn't matter what blessings a man experiences in this life, if he dies in his sin, where does he go for all eternity? He goes to hell. And Christ said, what is a prophet of man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? So how can a man be under the blessing of God if he forfeits his soul in hell for all eternity? The blessing must refer to the spiritual, the eternal. It must refer to salvation. And the seed of Abraham is that source of blessing that results in salvation, not only for the Jews, but also for the nations as well. In his seed, the nations shall be blessed. Genesis 22, verse uh, 1. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham raised his eyes, and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid on it Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. He said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, <clears throat> declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So here, again, there, after Abraham is willing to offer his son Isaac on this altar, and the Lord stops him from doing so, then he pronounces this blessing, uh, a reaffirming uh, of the promise that was originally given in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12, actually it was reaffirmed in chapter 14, which we've been studying in Hebrews chapter 7 with the person of Melchizedek. So 12, 14, 15, 17, and then here in chapter 22, you have this promise 
reaffirmed or uh, given to him again and in this final confirmation to Abraham that his seed will be the source of blessing to all of the nations. That one of his descendants, someone who would come from his loins, right? Who would be, in terms of his humanity, he would be a descendant of Abraham. He would be born of this family and that it would be this seed of Abraham that would be the source of blessing for all of the nations. So that the nations are blessed in Abraham through this seed, right? And this seed here is a singular offspring. Now we know that in terms of physical descendants, Abraham had many offspring, right? There were many physical descendants. The entire body of the Jewish nation descended from their father, Abraham. But here specifically, he's not talking about the body of the nation that is the source, but one person from that nation. So the nation is a source of blessing, but only insofar as they are the vehicle or the tool used by God in order to bring about the Christ, to bring him into the world. And he will be a blessing indeed to all the nations. So these blessings, again, must refer to salvation, right? It must refer to the eternal spiritual blessings that are going to be procured for the people of God through the death and through the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That His taking on human flesh, His being born under the law, His dying on the cross for our sins and being raised for our justification, this being the source, the foundation for our redemption and our reconciliation with God. So that instead of being at enmity with God, now we can come into terms of peace with God, right? Enmity in our sinful state, but we come to terms of peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, then Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 4. And here the Apostle, the Apostle Paul puts these things together and certainly... In chapter 3 and 4, well, chapter 3, he explicitly quotes from Genesis 22. But then in chapter 4, it's obvious that he's making a reference uh, to Genesis chapter 3, to Genesis 3, that Christ was born of a woman, right? Born of a woman, that he was the seed of the woman, that he is then connecting these pieces and showing that these passages have their fulfillment in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth, that man born to Mary and to Joseph, that this is the individual, right? The person born in human history in which all of these promises find their fulfillment in him. <clears throat> and that we should not look for another Christ or another Messiah or another Savior in addition to Christ uh, or someone in, in, uh, as a replacement for Christ. That there is no other Christ, there is no other Messiah. God has only promised that there would be one seed of Abraham. And if we do not believe in that seed of Abraham, then we don't have salvation. And we'll never have salvation because he's only provided, there's only one Savior, one Savior provided by God. There's only one God, and there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 1 to 18. It says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then does he who provide you, provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, that the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Here in this passage, the apostle is teaching them, contrasting salvation by the law, law keeping, and salvation by grace through faith. Right? That these are the two paths before them. One of them results in death and condemnation, and the other one results in life and justification. And we know that only salvation by faith in Christ will result in a man's justification and in his approval before God. And by works of the law, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight because it's through the law that comes the knowledge of sin. He talks about no one being justified by the law before God. No one can be justified by the law before God. And we know that from Genesis chapter 3. For if anyone in the history of the world could have been justified before God by law keeping, it was Adam and Eve in their original state because they did not have a nature inclined to sin. But in their original state, even in the state of innocence, were they able to maintain that innocence, that original righteousness? Could they through their obedience or did they through their obedience obtain the blessings given there in the covenant of works? And the answer is obviously no. But rather they procured for themselves and their offspring the Curses that were there in the covenant of works. Because the covenant of works given to Adam in the garden, there were blessings in life with obedience, but there was also curses in death with disobedience. And because he disobeyed, then what he received was the curse of the law. He is under that curse. And now no human being is in a state to where he can obtain salvation and righteousness through his own law-keeping. The Galatians, their problem is they're flipping and flopping between the two. That originally they believed, they received the Spirit, right? They begun by the Spirit. God is doing miracles among them. And all of this has come to them by the hearing of faith, through faith in Christ. Yet now they're seeking to add to faith in Christ law-keeping, 
right? The covenant or the, the old covenant and the rules and regulations associated with it as a addition to their justification. That it's faith in Christ plus observing these rituals and ceremonies of the old covenant and that both of them are necessary in order to produce salvation. And he's showing them how foolish this is, that you cannot mix and mingle these two things together. And if you uh, bring circumcision in, then what are you also bringing in with that? The entire law and the rules and stipulations of the law, which mandates blessings for perfect obedience and curses for one transgression. So if you admit circumcision, then you are required, he says, to keep the whole law. If you're going to do it based upon your performance, then you have to do it based on your performance. And you can't fall back on Christ to get you out of a pinch whenever it's not going to go well for you. So he's saying you need to, to choose this day whom you're going to serve, right? You need to choose, is it going to be the hearing of faith? Are you going to live by faith in the Son of God? Or are you going to live according to your own obedience, to your own uh, performance of the law? Right? You cannot have it both ways. It has to be one or the other. He's commending to them salvation by Christ. That Christ is the only means by which we can be redeemed from the curse of the law. And what is the curse of the law? It is death, right? It is death both in this life and then also death in the life to come. Both the first and the second death, this is the curse of the law and all the miseries that accompany that, right? All the miseries of being under the wrath and having this enmity and hostility against God. And the only means uh, ordained by God by which a man can be redeemed from that curse of the law is through Christ, by Christ becoming a curse for us, which is what He has done, because He was hanged on a tree. That in the law there was this provision signaling the type of death in which Christ would die that those who died by hanging on a tree, that it was a way of showing that this person was accursed of God. And certainly no one, in terms of facing the judgment of God in the history of the world, was under a curse like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He was indeed accursed of God, not because of His sins, but because of our sins, right? He took our sins in His body on the tree. Now, all of this is so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. The blessing that was spoken of in Genesis chapter 22, this blessing that it would come to the Gentiles, which was foretold there whenever the Lord told to Abraham that in his seed, all the nations would be blessed. And in terms of the bringing about of salvation in the people of God, it is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is the effective means by which all of the blessings of salvation are communicated to us. He is the one that produces all of this good within us. So without the Holy Spirit, is there any salvation? Can any of us be saved without the work of the Holy Spirit? No. He is the one who takes all of the benefits that are procured by Christ and He applies all of those blessings to the people of God. He is the one that works that salvation and produces it in us, right? He's the one that does it. So without the Spirit, there is no salvation. And the Spirit and His work, this is the blessing that God promised to give to Abraham. Now, He goes on and He talks about 
covenants. That when a covenant is ratified, no one can set it aside and no one can add conditions to it. This is the way it works in a covenant or in some legal transaction among men. If this transaction is ratified between the two parties, once that transaction is ratified, that document is ratified, then at that point, it's set in stone. And no one can amend it, no one can add to it, and no one can set it aside. Right? You can't come back and say, well, it was a mistake, I didn't mean that. No, once you sign that document, then, then you have to abide by the terms of that covenant. Well, this is true as well in terms of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And then the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. And the way that we understand the relationship with the covenant of Abraham and the covenant at Sinai. And this goes in well with what we're talking about in Hebrews chapter 7, right? And all, actually the whole book of Hebrews is dealing with this relationship, Hebrews and Galatians and Romans, but Hebrews and Galatians are dealing almost exclusively with the relationship between the promises made to Abraham and then the covenant made at Mount Sinai. And the relationship of those things to Christ and to the worship of God under the new covenant, right? What is the relationship of all of these things? Well, he's saying here that this covenant made with Abraham, once God entered into that covenant with him, then it cannot be set aside and it cannot have conditions added to it. And when God made that covenant with Abraham, he promised salvation on the condition of faith, not salvation on the condition of law keeping, but only on the basis by grace through faith. This is the means by which God would confer the blessings of salvation to Abraham. And then the way that these blessings would be secured for him and for his descendants was through his seed, through his seed. And that's what he says in verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, to your seed, that is Christ. The blessings are in reference to the seed of Abraham, and that seed of Abraham here, the Apostle Paul tells us, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then in verse 17, he says, what I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. This covenant given to Abraham by God 430 years before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, that covenant was ratified by God. It could not be set aside and conditions could not be added to it after it was ratified by God between Abraham. And in that covenant, God has sworn to Abraham that he would bless him and that Abraham and his seed would be the source of eternal blessings to all of the nations. Now, once that is put in place, then whatever comes after that cannot overthrow it. It cannot annul it. It cannot change the stipulations of that covenant. But rather, it must be understood in light of what came before. And it must be interpreted in light of what has already taken place in the life of Abraham. So then, what is the purpose of Sinai? What is the purpose of the nation of Israel? What is the purpose of the covenant that ruled their form of worship from Sinai until the coming of Christ? Well, he tells us in chapter 4, it was to serve as a tutor in order to keep the people there uh, in bondage, to keep them until the Christ should appear. 
but that when the Christ would appear, then what must happen to that old covenant? It has to be set aside. It has to be set aside, and now all the focus and attention needs to be placed upon Christ. He must be the center of everything. And God had already established in the patriarch Abraham that salvation was not on the basis of law-keeping, but rather salvation was through the seed of Abraham, who is also the seed of the woman, that he would be the source of salvation. And again, how can anyone reading the Old Testament think that any man could ever save themselves by their own works? If it couldn't happen in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 with a man and a woman who were in a state of original righteousness, if they could not so much as a single day maintain their righteousness, then how can we, who inherit a sinful nature, how can we, through our obedience, secure for ourselves the blessings of salvation? It's impossible. So where should we look? We have to look to someone else, someone outside of us who would be the source of salvation. And that again was announced in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, again reaffirmed in Genesis 22 as the seed of Abraham, and now brought to our attention in Galatians chapter 3 that the seed was referring to Christ. Then Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, and that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Here, it was in the fullness of time. Right? In God's perfect wisdom, He determined to send the Christ into the world, not on the immediate committing of the first sin. Certainly God could have done that had He chosen to do so. He could have sent Christ down from heaven then, uh, he could have had him be born uh, miraculously conceived in Eve, and he could have came right then and been the source of salvation. But God determined to do it in a way, according to his own wisdom, that would magnify his own glory. And he determined to do that after many, many years had passed. 4,000 years after Adam and Eve had committed the first sin in the fullness of time, after God had established the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai had put in place these various rituals and ceremonies that they were following for over a thousand years, teaching them the significance of Christ and His work, that in the fullness of time, with all of these things in place, then God would bring forth His Christ, His Messiah, according to His own wisdom. And here, it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth His Son, the One who came... The Christ is the Son of God, right? He is God's Son, which is referring to His divinity, that He is God, the Son of God, who has the same divine nature as the Father. So He is equal to the Father in terms of His nature. He is not of a different nature. He's not of a different substance, but one in the same with the Father. So He is 
coming from the Father, right? God sent forth His Son, but His Son was born of a woman. So there, it's the humanity of Christ. He's the Son of God, and He is the Son of Man in the one person, our Lord Jesus Christ. A divine nature and a human nature in the one person who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And there, He is born of the woman, born of a woman, which refers back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He's not born of a man because he did not have a human father. He had a miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit, and his mother was the Virgin Mary. She was a virgin. We must contend for the virgin birth of Christ. It was an immaculate and miraculous conception that came about by the power of God. And here, he's born under the law. The law that we have violated, that we have broken. The law that Adam transgressed there in the Garden of Eden. The stipulations of this law must be fulfilled, right? It must be fulfilled. Can it be fulfilled in us? It cannot, right? We cannot keep the law of God perfectly so as to secure our own righteousness, nor can any of us bear the full weight of the penalty of that law. Because no matter the wicked, when they go to hell, they will be there for all eternity because they will never be able to exhaust the wrath of God against them for their violations of the law of God. It is an eternal punishment. So we need someone who can be born, who can come into this world, who has a nature like ours, who can keep the law of God perfectly, offering to God perfect obedience, perfect conformity to His law, and then also who can take the penalty of the law because of our sin and also extinguish that, right? Come to the end of the wrath of God. And who is the only one qualified to do this? Our Lord Jesus Christ. As a man, He is qualified to live a righteous life on our behalf and to suffer the penalty of the law for us. But as divine God, His divinity upholding His humanity, He is able to bear the full weight of the wrath of God against us and consume all of it in His person so that there is not one drop of God's wrath that is left against us. He drank the cup of the wrath of God and He drained it all the way down. So He is uniquely qualified then to be the only Redeemer to restore God and sinful man together. The means of our reconciliation is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. We are under the law, born under the law in our natural state. We are still under the covenant of works with Adam. And as under that law, we are under condemnation. But now, Christ has fulfilled that law for us by perfectly obeying it in our place and by suffering the penalty of the law because of our sin. And now there is nothing that is standing in the way of God receiving us into His fellowship again. And so now, He says, we are sons of God. We have been brought into the family of God and that relationship, that fellowship that was lost in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam sinned against God is now restored through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so that instead of enmity and hostility with God, we have terms of peace with God and that we are brought into His family and now we are made heirs of God in Christ. And the state of man in redemption, in our glorification, it will be better than what Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden because they were created with original righteousness, but they were mutable. They had the potential to fall, and they did fall.
but we will be made into the image of the Son of God. We will bear the image of Christ, and we will be immutable in our righteousness in that we will never be able to fall from that state of grace. So it'll be even better. It's restoration uh, and then some, right? Uh, a, a restoring of us back to the Garden of Eden, but to an even greater degree and to an even greater state. And all of this according to the wisdom of God. That's why it all took place in the first place, was to magnify God's wisdom to show His glory through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are simply pieces in this puzzle that God is putting together in order to display His own glory and His own honor. And we ought to be very grateful to be a part of that. Amen.